James Galleon is a was a um, avid outdoorsman who was riding five miles outside of Fairbanks one Tuesday morning in April of 1992. He glanced over to the side of the road and there standing in the snow in the early dawn of Alaska was a young man carrying a backpack with a rifle protruding out of the top. The young man looked frank, well, he looked friendly enough, and in Alaska, it's not uncommon to carry a semi-automatic rifle, and so he pulled over and asked the young man to get in. When he got in, the young man introduced himself as Alex. Galleon said, Alex. Young man said, just Alex. He said he was looking for a ride to the edge of the Denali National Park. He wanted to be dropped off near the Stampede Trail. And so for the next three hours in this drive, Galleon carried on a conversation with this young man and learned much more about him. He discovered that Alex was hoping to get out to the national park so he could just wander into the wild and he could live there by himself. In his words, live off the land for a few months. But as they got talking, Galleon noticed that the man seemed unprepared for this. The backpack was somewhere between 25 and 30 pounds of weight, he guessed, and that was not enough weight to live in the coldness of Alaska for a few months. He asked what was inside of the backpack and the young man said he'd packed some clothes, he packed a 10 pound bag of rice, no other food, he had a camera and a sleeping bag that was made by his mother. This was when Galleon started to talk him out of it. He had no compass. He had no navigational tool. He was just going to walk into the wilderness of Alaska. Galleon asked if he'd reconsider. The man said he would not. No thanks, he said. I'll be fine with what I have. He offered to drive to Anchorage, go into the store, buy him some more things. He said, I'm absolutely positive I'll be fine with what I have. He asked him if his parents knew what he was doing. He said he hadn't seen his parents in three years. But, said the young man, I won't run into anything that I cannot handle on my own. So he drove him to the edge of the Stampede Trail the young man got out and walked into the wild. Galleon never heard from him again till four months later, when he discovered on the news that the young man's name was not Alex, it was Christopher McCandless. And he was not just some random runaway. He was a graduate from Emory University. He was an accomplished athlete. He had a fair amount of experience with excursions into the wild. What he lacked was common sense. Whatever he had done before would not prepare him for the harsh terrain of Alaska. He learned in the news that Christopher McCandless did in fact make it into the wild. He found a 1940s bus that had been abandoned by the Fairbanks Transit Authority and he turned that bus into his home. He took pictures of himself and kept journals, short, terse, 
statements of what had happened in the day. Many of them spoke of the deprivation and the loneliness that he was facing. The next human beings to lay eyes on him were a couple of moose hunters. When they discovered his dead and decomposed body, they assumed he had been dead at least nine days. The best that they could tell, he lived out there about 113 days. And then he died. Some were saying that he died of starvation. When John Krakauer wrote of this in his book, Into the Wild, that's what he said. But then they started to second guess that. They thought maybe it was poisoning. He was eating wild plants and maybe the wrong ones, but the toxins didn't line up with that. And so some concocted yet another theory that what killed the young man was not medical at all. It was emotional. It was loneliness. Some have pointed out that loneliness is the leading cause of death for young people who do not have a medical condition. There may be other medical symptoms of that, but it is loneliness that drives them into the behavior that causes those symptoms. If the first rule of the house is about language, speak truth, we said last week, then the second rule of the house is about presence. You go together. People in strong families and strong communities do things together or they die alone. There's an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, you go alone, but if you want to go far, you go together or you die alone because you are in yourself whatever the Americans have taught you about individualism, no match for the terrain of life. So the second rule has to do with being present in one another's lives under pressure. It has to do with perseverance and community and loyalty and bonding with each other under pressure. Strong communities turn toward each other. Weak communities turn away from each other when the pressure is on. And so Ecclesiastes would say two are better than one. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the one who falls alone, there will be no one to help him up. If two lie down, they keep warm, says Ecclesiastes. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three is not easily broken. And the way Paul says this is to encourage one another, spur one another on toward love and good deeds, comfort one another with the comfort you yourself once received from God. Carry one another's burdens, for when you do, you practice the way of Christ. 
the scene that captures this rule for me of all scenes is Jesus in the wilderness. Because while Jesus seemed to be alone, he was always alone together. The traditional way of interpreting this scene of Jesus in the wilderness is that it's one-on-one. It's Jesus versus the devil. And the devil is trying to compromise Jesus's moral integrity. And so he's putting in front of Jesus temptations, hoping that he will get Jesus to fall into some kind of immoral behavior. When we, and I mean we, myself included, preach sermons like this, we'd like to compare Jesus to the first Adam in the Garden of Eden. We like to point out to the listeners that just as Adam was tempted with appetite, the food was good for, the apple was good for food, he was tempted with avarice or greed, it was pleasing to the eye, and he was tempted with ambition, it was desirable to make one wise. Jesus, we say, was tempted in exactly the same way, with his appetite, turn this stone into bread and eat it. He was tempted with greed. I will give you the kingdoms of the world if you bow down to me. And he was tempted with ambition. You should jump off this pinnacle and prove that you are the son of God. And while that sermon has encouraged a lot of people, including myself, to resist the temptations of the devil, even using scripture. I hope you'll forgive me if I think there's more to it than that. To start with, when Jesus goes into the wilderness, he does not go alone. Matthew says he was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So he was led by the spirit, but tempted by the devil. The spirit may not have tempted him. I don't believe he did, but he clearly put him in a place where he knew he would be tempted. Mark uses the word drove. It says the spirit drove him into the wilderness. It's a strong verb that is used for casting out demons. So Mark makes it sound like this wasn't really only Jesus's idea. And this wasn't something he wanted to do. It wasn't because he got lost. It was because he was compelled by the spirit and pushed into the wilderness. And Luke, uses the word spirit twice. He says he came out of the Jordan River full of the Holy Spirit, and then the spirit, the one who was with him in the baptism, actually led him to the place where he would be tempted. And the word that is used for led is imperfect. It's passive, but it's imperfect. And so a better translation would be Jesus was being led. One writer puts it, 
Jesus was led around by the Spirit. What I'm telling you is the Spirit did not drop him off on a trail heading into the wilderness and say, I'll see you in 40 days if you make it. The Spirit, in fact, went with him into the place where he was tempted. So this means that the temptation that took place in the wilderness was not really about the tempting of an individual. It was the tempting of a community. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all there. Everything uttered to the Son was heard by the Spirit and the Father. If you want a better image, you picture a player being helped off the field with two other players on his side. Now that may make the theologians nervous, but it might be closer to the actual event than the image you used to have of an individual wandering by himself into some God-forsaken country while the Father and the Spirit wait with bated breath to see how he's going to do. They were all in the wilderness, not just one of them. So this changes the way we read the story. Maybe the story isn't so much about the temptation as it is the wilderness. Maybe this has more to do with the wilderness. The wilderness was legendary in Jesus' day. It was a harsh, wild, unforgiving land. Whenever you were in the wilderness, you were either headed somewhere else and you got stuck, or you were lost. But whether you were stuck or lost, you almost never came out of it alive. In the wilderness, you were subject to forces beyond your control. You were up against raw nature and your raw human desire. Your enemies were the beasts, the bloodthirsty beasts that lived out there. You didn't overcome the wilderness. You survived it if you were lucky, and Israel rarely survived. It was in the wilderness that they built a golden calf, and 3,000 of them were killed on a single day. It was in the wilderness that they listened to the 10 spies instead of Joshua and Caleb. It was in the wilderness that they were complaining about the food that God provided, and he killed them with the meat still in their mouths, and they buried him in the graves of craving. It was the wilderness that opened itself up and swallowed thousands of them on a single day. It was out there 
where the serpents came and bit them and thousands more died. Israel had a vivid memory of the wilderness. And what intrigues me is that when Jesus leaves the baptism, he is driven by the Spirit directly from his baptism. You are my beloved son. Into the God-forsaken country where that is used against him. If you are God's beloved son, then turn this stone into bread. He goes straight from the fertile banks of the river into the dry and barren wilderness because he is motivated by the Holy Spirit. Maybe this has less to do with temptation and more to do with mission. Maybe God is trying to get back the wilderness. This is why the prophet said in Isaiah 35, there is coming a day when people who trembled in the wilderness, where their hands got feeble and their knees gave way and their eyes shut blind and their ears went deaf and their mouth couldn't speak. The prophet said there will come a time when God will not only redeem people in the wilderness, he will redeem them because of the wilderness. He will take the wilderness back, said the prophet. So that which was once a dry and thirsty place where everyone was afraid to go, God would turn that into an oasis. He would make the cactuses blossom. He would send pools of water where once there was only sand. He would create a highway straight down the middle for people that were holy. This would be no place to be afraid of. You wouldn't need to be intimidated or afraid of the wilderness. You could live there. You could thrive there. If you went together. So when Jesus hears the devil's voice, probably in his own head, this is no little man wearing a red suit. This is probably, as N.T. Wright said, a string of thoughts running through his own head. The first one, turn this stone into bread might be less about appetite and more about entitlement. If you are the son of God, take advantage of that and turn this stone into bread. After all, you are alone and you are hungry. And there is nothing wrong with using the benefit of your status in order to get your needs met. The second has less to do with greed, perhaps, and more to do with power. Look at the kingdoms of the world, he says. Bow down to me, and I will give you, wait for it, all of the authority and splendor. 
power and glory that was given to me. Yes, but if it came from him, it would be a different kind of power and a different kind of glory. You'd have it, but the power and glory you would have would fracture the community. It would not bond them together. You would, in fact, be using the others to get for yourself more power and more glory. The third, if you are the son of God, jump from the pinnacle. For even the scripture says, God will come and protect you. He'll send angels to get under you. May have more to do with folly, foolishness, random, momentary lapse of judgment that obligates the others to vouch for you, to protect you. Now think for a moment of the families, organizations, teams, or unions that are having relationship problems. Somewhere near the center of their dis-ease is entitlement. Somebody in the family is using the family for personal advantage. Power. Somebody in the family wants more authority and more splendor. And foolishness. Somebody in the family is doing something stupid. So now the rest of them got to cover them. What does this have to do with you? I think there is a place in your life that you're afraid to go. It intimidates you. Because every time you go there, you lose. And you're ashamed of it. So you don't tell anybody. And you think you'll beat it, but you'll beat it alone. Let me be clear. Sometimes the temptations that unravel you are connected to a physical space. And every time you're in it, you do it again. You must take back that space. You must go, but you go together. You must not let your shame drive you into isolation. You don't have to deny it, and you don't have to beat that place alone. You go together. You let others in, and you go together. For some of you, the problem 
is not a physical space. It's a mental space. And every time you get in it, you lose. And you're ashamed of it. And the more ashamed you are, the more private you get. You must let others in. You go together or you die alone. Are you hearing this? You must not let shame keep you from overcoming that space. Sometimes you are tempted not because God has abandoned you, but because God has chosen you. This isn't proof that you aren't his child. It might be proof that you are. But you must go in strength and you must go together. What I'm most concerned about is the people around you. Because I think you live in dorms or you work in places uh, where other people are, they are dying for someone to speak into their lives. And the reason you don't go, you say, is that you don't know what to say. Listen, if you knew what to say before you went, it would be disingenuous. You, you can't help people by memorizing scripture verses and then wheeling them around like they're pills. Got a verse? Oh, hey, yeah, hang on. Oh, what is this, a placebo or something? You can't memorize phrases and then dole them out to people in a crisis. Of course you don't know what to say, but you must not let that keep you from going to the people who need you. Because I believe that if you listen well, God will help you diagnose what is happening and what you are to say will become apparent, but you can't see it from here. You will have to go first, but you must go with people who are stuck in the desert. If you live or you work in mostly Christian communities, you work at College Church, or you work in one of the Christian universities, you're thinking, well, but you know, most of the people around me are Christians. Yes, yeah, so it's even harder because most Christians that I know live this bipolar life. Part of them is still in the Jordan River and they're hearing, oh, I am God's son. And then a day later, no, it's an hour later, they're in the wilderness and they're being tempted for some kind of compromise. And they're always vacillating back and forth. Am I really God's child or am I really somebody else? They don't know who they are. And so they are acting out of this false 
image of themselves. It's a person that has to perform to prove themselves. They manipulate relationships in order to elevate themselves. They defend themselves. They promote themselves because they're always wondering about their status in the company of their peers. What are other people thinking about me right now? Where do I stand in the market? And these are Christians we're talking about. This does not impugn in any way their walk with Jesus Christ. It just means people suffer in lonely places and they need company. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's you. Everything you're doing maybe is trying to prove. All about performance, isn't it? You prepare, you perform. That's what we do. You can't play that forever. That will catch up with you. Find somebody and let them in and you go together into your abandoned places. And if you live or work in one of these communities, look around you. Don't just look at your job description. Don't just do your job. Look around you at the people God has put into your path and ask yourself these questions. I get them straight from what Jesus said the Spirit would do for you. First, ask yourself, what have they forgotten that they need to be reminded of? Jesus said, when he comes, he will remind you of all things I have said. So what has Jesus said about them that they forgot and they need to hear again? Please make this one sentence. It can't be a paragraph or you'll forget it. One sentence. What has the Spirit told them they forgot? Second, what kind of guidance do they need? Now make that one word. If you make it a sentence, you'll forget it. Make it one word. What type of guidance do they need? Is it courage? Is it knowledge? Is it wisdom? Conviction? Inspiration? Jesus said, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. And third, what's the best way to tell them? What have they forgotten? What do they need to hear? And what's the best way to tell them? Your temptation will beat them find the most convenient way, which is generally not the best way. 
But if you would put yourself in that person's position for a few seconds and ask yourself, what is the best way for them to hear this? It isn't what fits my schedule or what am I good at. It's if I were them, how would I want to hear those words? Sometimes that is a text, but it might be an epistle. (laughs) And that's okay. You can send epistles and texts, but you have to be careful. Pray about it. You find a place in scripture that parallels what's happening to them and you weave that into your text. Then you really, and the beauty is they've got it now. They can go back to it and read it again and again and again. It may be a face-to-face encounter, even under social distancing. It may be a phone call. You might just need to show up. What is it that they forgot? What do they need to hear? And what's the best way to tell them? I have uh, tried to distill those questions into one that is more basic. I hope will encourage discussion. Wherever you go, you go together. So how might we be more present in each other's lives and in the life of our community?